even when I started getting awards, when I got the first Coretta Scott King Award and she was at the ceremony with my grandmother and my siblings and and they give me this huge award. They say all this beautiful stuff about my writing. There are you know, hundreds of people in the audience. And my grandmother's like, well, maybe now someone will give you a job Like now that you've gotten this award. So, so I think there was a way in which my mom and my grandmother never quite understood it. So that they understood, they saw the books. You know, I sit them down and try to explain advances and royalties and sub rights. And it was like, whoosh, like, what is this? What is this world? What this world is, is the world of Jacqueline Woodson, a gifted and much admired award-winning writer. From June 14th Productions and Gemini 13 Productions, this is Before the Cheering Started. I'm Bud Mishkin. It's a podcast all about the journey to success, the early years when that success was by no means guaranteed, the Before the Cheering Started years. The significance of Jacqueline Woodson extends far beyond the awards and the acclaim. Growing up in the Brooklyn neighborhood of Bushwick, she lost herself in books and fell in love with writing. But she rarely saw herself, a young African-American girl, in the characters of the books she loved. Now, she's a beacon to young black and brown writers and to any aspiring writers who don't see themselves on the page. Her influences growing up in Bushwick were many and varied. The iconic African-American writer James Baldwin, the celebrated children's author Judy Bloom, and... Mad Magazine. <laughs> I think um, the thing I really loved about Mad Magazine was the comic relief of it and the way that it was, um, it always was a parody of some part of our real lives that felt very relevant to me as a 10 year old, 11 year old, 12 year old. And it was my brother who was. It, these were his comics. These were his magazines. He had this whole comic collection. Um, but there was something about Mad Magazine that I read cover to cover um, religiously. And and I think I learned about writing. I learned about um, the fact that you can be silly in writing. You can um, create these characters that seem incredibly unrealistic and at the same time are very much real in some way, but, but I just love it. I mean, it changed a little and I remember cracked magazine coming along and not mm-hmm. being as good, but, but I was a, I was an avid mad magazine reader. And you said this was your brother's comics, but in terms of your friends in the neighborhood, were they also fans or did you have to kind of explain, Hey, this thing is pretty great. <laughs> I had to explain like it, it was, it was one of the other ways in which I think we were kind of oddballs in our neighborhood. I don't think there were a lot of mad magazine readers. They, of course there were DC and Marvel readers, but in terms of mad magazine, I think we were in our little odd bubble. <laughs> I've been thinking about this, this notion of seeing as a young reader, seeing yourself in the books that you read. And I'm embarrassed to admit that maybe not embarrassed is the right word, but I don't think it even dawned on me as I was reading things growing up. Like, do I see myself or not? And and maybe that's a conceit on my part. How important was it to you or how much of an impact did it have on you growing up not seeing yourself, not seeing black faces, not seeing brown faces in the things that you were reading? Um, I think one of the things that stay with me now as an adult is, um, is that sense of where am I in this? And, and Mad Magazine, I mean, 
there were black and brown faces in Matt, which was, um, and I and I would have to go back and look and see if they were stereotypical or racist or, or I, I don't remember. I don't remember looking at them and feeling deflated um, where it, there were some times when I read books that I am not going to name them because I don't want to censor any books where I thought this is supposed to be a reflection of me, but it isn't because this person is white and can't possibly understand this world is writing from outside of this experience. Um, but I think see, it wasn't until I saw myself truthfully that I realized, wow, I was absent in those other places. I mean, it became more clear, but, um, but it didn't stop me from reading. What I did was I tried to find parts of myself. When I think of Judy Blooms, are you there, God? It's me, Margaret. We were both flat chested. So I'm like, I'll take it. This is the mirror. I'll take, you know, the, the character in Are You There, God? It's me, Margaret, was going through some of the same things that I was going through as a girl growing up in America. Um, but she was going through it from a suburban point of view. And I was going through it from the point of view of Brooklyn. Um, so, so I think looking back, I really just kind of thought, I, I don't, I wouldn't say settled, but I just thought this is the way the world is. And it's not going to always be this way because I am going to change it. I'm going to write that I'm going to write this into some other kind of narrative. So there's an intention early on when oh, you start thi- when you definitely. start thinking about being a writer that hey if this happens for me or when this happens for me mm-hmm. yeah. uh, this is I'm going to do this. It was always when and it was always that this is not always going to be this way. Um so I I was I was an intentional child. I think I was always and, and I think that comes from my family being like you are valuable. You are beautiful. You you are worthy. And and this idea that well, where am I in literature? And it's like, oh, you haven't written it yet. So so it was probably coming from this also this clueless place of like, oh yeah, you'll write it and then you'll be there. <laughs> and so, but and at the same time, once I really started telling my story, telling stories, you know, because that was also the thing we were being taught: tell your story, right? And so my story was this story of a black girl growing up in Brooklyn, you know, and all the other stories, the great migration, the story of my family, the story of my coming of age as a writer, all of that was part of the narrative that I wanted to one day tell. Um, The question was how, how was I going to do it? But I always knew I would. If you close your eyes now, can you still picture what the Washington Irving branch library (laughs) in the neighborhood looks like? Yes, yes, I, I never forgot. <laughs> and I also, I, I never left. I mean, I, I left physically. I moved, I went away to college. I moved to Park Slope. I, but Bushwick is still home to me. And um, that library is still there. Of course, it looks smaller. The librarians have changed. The interiors have changed. But I've gone back many times. And I walk those streets lots. So yes, I know Bushwick well. It's changed a lot. <laughs> and going to that library, was that a, from your mom, a, look, you're going to go to this library, or did you gravitate to it naturally? <laughs> That's a great question. The way we went to the library is every day after school, the four of us had to go to the library. And the library was kind of like the after school, the daycare, like all the kids <laughs> in the neighborhood who had working parents. That's where they went because that was the safe space. And and the librarians knew it. They knew that all these kids were coming from school 
to the library. It was walking distance from the public school. We went to the school in our neighborhood, um, PS 106, PS 377. Um, and we walked to the library and we were there until 545 when my mother picked us up. And by the diff- because that she got off from work at five, she got to the library by five forty-five. She picked the four of us up, took us home. We had dinner, um, and in that time between three three fifteen and five forty-five, we were supposed to do our homework and we were supposed to choose books. If we already had books at home, they were supposed to be in our book bag, and we were supposed to sit quietly and read them or find new books. So, so there was a system and a method to the madness of being in the library, but the library was always very familiar. And that was from the time I was in probably first grade to sixth grade. And the notion, maybe as you get a little bit older, the notion that, wow, I I love this, this book or these books can take me to a different place. And that one day I can do this. Is that a pipe dream at that point as you're growing up? Or is that a specific, you know what? Why not? Why not me? I can do this. It felt more like, uh, it felt fantastical and also very real. Um, I didn't have a backup plan, but there, at the same time, there weren't writers in our neighborhood. You know, it wasn't that period where I'm sure there were plenty of writers that weren't published writers. There weren't authors coming into your school and talking about how they became writers. There wasn't the internet. There wasn't um, authors coming to the library. Like none of that. I remember the first author I met, I was in 11th grade and it was Betty Thomas who wrote a book called Down These Mean Streets. And and I remember him coming to visit our school because some, one of the teachers knew him from the Bronx. And um, and, and we took a picture because I was um, in politics at school. So, so you know, the, the president, um, the vice president, we all took pictures behind him. And I remember touching his shoulder and thinking, I'm touching a writer. I'm touching a real <laughs> writer. But, but in terms of um, thinking of, becoming a writer, I didn't have the human um, people saying this is so, but I had the books. Like there were humans who had written books before me, so I knew I could do this. Uh, You uh, also were the uh, literary editor for your school, I think both in fifth and 11th grade. Mm -hmm. Um, Yes. Under the heading of a position I've never been in, can you tell me what being a literary editor in fifth grade is like? (laughs) And does that involve not just collecting pieces from uh, other schoolmates, but also kind of giving them notes on, look, uh, I think you're a little uh, heavy on the exposition here. (laughs) How'd that work? It was, uh, we pretty much published everything. Okay. (laughs) We didn't have a lot of submissions. It involved a mimeograph machine (laughs) because we would um, make copies that way. But my job was to, when people gave me pieces to actually write them out. I also had very neat handwriting. So all of it was handwritten. And then we'd make a bunch of copies and it was only for the class, you know, it was for the fifth grade class. I'm sure my teacher came in and did some editing, um, you know, made some grammatical and spelling changes, but that was the role of it as uh, in fifth grade. And I remember very clearly because I remember the smell of the ink from the machine and rolling it out. So it was a privilege to be able to go down to the main office and and create these magazines. In 11th grade, um, I was part of a committee, but I was I was the editor. And and um, and that involved collecting pieces and working with my English teacher at that time. It was Mr. Miller, who who was um, very supportive of my writing. And, and, And at that point, it was a lot of Jacqueline Woodson being published in the literary magazine. That's great. 
Who is the person, if you remember, who told you, uh, if you're lying, put it down on paper? They call it fiction. <laughs> I I think it was Miss Vivo. I think it was my fifth grade teacher who told me. It might have been my third grade. It might have been my first grade. You know, I was always making up stories. But but I remember hearing it early on, and it was probably it was probably my fifth grade teacher because that's when a lot of the tools of writing started to really stick. You know, someone saying, you are a writer. Someone saying, this is how you write. Someone giving me the space to write. Um, my writing being shared. Um, so I would think it was fifth grade. You mentioned the Great Migration. Uh, you grew up in Bushwick, Brooklyn. And every summer, as I understand it, or most summers, you would go to visit family in South Carolina. Can you explain to me and, and, and tell us uh, about that kind of bifurcated life and that it how it was a lot meant a lot more, the meaning of it was a lot more than just, oh, we're going to visit family down south? Uh, such a great question. It was, um, it, my family came to New York um, from South Carolina. I was born in Ohio. Then my mom and my mom and dad separated. My mom went back to her people in South Carolina, my grandmother and grandfather. Um, and we lived there for a bunch of years until my mother joined her sister in New York. And that was part of that great migration, which was the period from the 1900s to the mid to late 1970s, where millions of Black folks left the South for better opportunities for their children, for better jobs, to escape the oppression of Jim Crow, like all these ways in which this movement was happening that changed America. Um, and my family came to Bushwick. They came to Brownsville first and then Bushwick. Um, but the connection stayed. So it wasn't bifurcated. It was seamless. You know, it was like you're in New York during the school year on that last day of school. You go to downtown Brooklyn, you shop for a bunch of summer outfits, you pack suitcases, you get on that train or that Greyhound and you go back to your grandparents and you or you go back to your cousins. So you go back to your aunties. And that was part of the way of keeping that connection between, you know, the North and the South and, and the extended family because a lot of people didn't have a lot of extended family in the place they had migrated to. Mm -hmm. um, so, and it was also a way of keeping the Southern roots of keeping um, whatever religion you had, like all of these um, ways that we wanted to, that our parents wanted us to hold on to um, what they had known, but also know that there were parts of it that we've gotten rid of, right? We, we've, we've got, we, we have more opportunity in New York. We have a better educational system supposedly in New York. Like, so, so it was, it was interesting. And um, I miss it for my own kids because A, it would be fabulous to send them away for the summer to family, <laughs> you know, and, and to know that they are being taken care of and they're being nurtured and they're learning about their history, you know, so, so that I feel like we lost some of that in, in, um, in the decades that it didn't, it stopped happening in that way. Is there a pressure involved though, as you're growing up of the family who has been part of the great migration to the North, going back to the South and kind of representing, okay, mm -hmm. here's, here's for want of a better term, the progress that's been made, or here's who we are up north. And did you have to feel, did you feel, is that something you're cognizant of that you need to show, hey, we're doing well, or is that something that you only kind of uh, grasped upon reflection? 
even if you weren't, you had to show that you were doing well. <laughs> you know, you had to show that you made it. And so people would be not doing so well in New York, but would show. I mean, that's why my mother took us shopping on that last day of school. And they weren't expensive outfits, but they were all cotton and they were nice and they were sets. And when we went back down south, we did have to represent the success of the North. And we also, you know, we got made fun of, like kids made fun of the way we spoke. Um, and there was this, there was a jealousy of, uh, oh, you're those Northern people. You think you're better than us because you left. And so I think that got a little complicated at times. And, um, but but it, there was this idea that if you went back down South, and even the way we spoke, my mother was very clear about diction. You know, you were going to speak in a certain way. You, were, you weren't going to drag your R's or slur or mumble or say ain't or, or curse. Like there, she was very intentional about that. But um, when we went back down South, there were definitely the country cousins that were at once fascinated by us. So we were sort of an anomaly and also kind of like, well, you know, you think you're better. I remember you also told me that you'd come back up North and be in school and you were being taught in school that Jim Crow was a thing of the past. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, and exactly. you're like, really? Cause I was down South this summer. And how did you manage that? I, you just um, lived with the duality. It was so interesting. Cause I'm looking, I'm thinking about it now. And there were, there must've been so many kids who were like, wait a second. So maybe it was just my town that this was happening. Maybe it was just my grandmother who went to the back of the bus, but it was this idea that, this was something that was behind us. And, and until the late seventies, I know Greenville, South Carolina was very segregated and, and the, the rules still applied. So, um, so it was interesting to have it, have it being taught as history, right. And knowing, but also there was something amazing about being so close to history, right. We're talking about the civil rights movement. It's like, wait, you know, my auntie was there, like all of these things that were, and, and we're in another place. Now we're in Brooklyn and we're learning about it in our schools. And um, there was something looking back on it. I don't know how much I appreciated it in the moment, but that made me kind of sit up a little straighter, right? Like this is, this is something that I'm a part of, uh, that my people are a part of. You go on to Adelphi University and then you start working in, in jobs and the goal is always to be a writer or are there moments during those early years of, oh, maybe I'll try this. The goal was always to be a writer. And it's funny because I think in the nineties, my friends didn't understand that because the, I, I think the Iowa writers workshop was one of the big programs at the time. And everyone was like, well, if you're going to be a writer, go get an MFA. I'm like, I'd rather write. So, you know, I'd rather trial by fire it. And, and, and so every job I had was a job that was, how do I do this so that I can write? How do I um, fix my hours so that I can write in the morning or write in the evening? And the end goal was always to write. And so are there any moments during those jobs, those early jobs, like you work for a book packaging company, I believe, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, ever get uh, kind of down about, oh, I'm, I'm not, you know, I, I long for the day when I can just write? Uh, mm -hmm. Or did you have enough uh, little moments of hope, little victories that kind of kept you going through those early years? It's 
I worked for a company called Kirchhoff Wahlberg, and they packaged textbooks, and there was also a literary arm to it um, where they were publishing children's books, where where there was an agent who worked um, with writers. So um, on the textbook side, early on, I got to write standardized tests. So I got to write the short stories and um, and then have the questions that to explore the stories. Um, and and the, for me, that felt like, oh, I'm doing something. I'm doing something in writing. I'm, I'm, I'm making it. And it still wasn't the end game. I'm like, this is cute. I, I love doing this. I love being able to write this way. But I do want to write books. And, and by the time I got to um, Kirchhoff, I had already written um, last summer with Mason. So I showed it to the agent there, Liza. Her name was Liza Pulitzer at the time. She's Liza Voges now. And she, um, and, she, um, and I think she was starting to shop it around, but I also took a write, I was taking writing classes at night. Uh, so I was taking a class at the new school and this is early out of, um, out of college. Um, and an editor there, wanted to buy the book. So I was already on my way to being published, but I was also sending short stories out and sending poems and, you know, sending stuff to literary magazines and getting rejected and sending it out again. So even though I was in this job doing some writing, this end goal of wanting to write full time, it was always my dream. Like one day I will be able to write full time. I don't know any writer who didn't have to endure a boatload of rejection letters or not even getting the letter, just hearing silence. Did you have to go through that? And is it something that uh, propelled you or did it, did it, were there moments where it got you down in terms of, can I do this or not? I got a lot of rejection letters. Um, people actually wrote back that That's at nice. that time people, yeah, were sending stuff through the mail. And I remember getting, I would send a lot of stuff to the New Yorker and, um, and I would get this form letter rejection. Um, this is not right for our magazine. Thank you for sending it. And, and I remember at one point, Daniel Maniger, who was the editor there, wrote at the bottom, Jacqueline, you know, keep sending stuff. Your work just gets better and better. And I hope to publish you one day or something like that. And, and I wish I had to frame that because that was the nicest rejection letter I had ever gotten. And it, it gave, you know, it had such grace to it. And it gave me, um, I'm like, I'm doing something like someone is seeing me. Someone is seeing this. But the rejection letters never crumpled me. I mean, you can't be a writer and 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 be deflated by a rejection letter. It's just part of of the journey. This is before the cheering started. I'm Bud Mishkin. The rejection letters soon stopped coming in for Jacqueline Woodson. Among the many honors she's received, the 2020 MacArthur Foundation, the so-called Genius Award. The foundation wrote that Woodson got the award for, quote, redefining children's and young adult literature to encompass more complex issues and reflect the lives of black children, teenagers, and families. Early on, Woodson's toughest audience may have been at home because her mom wasn't quite clear on how this love of writing would turn into a J-O-B. It's so funny. I think my mom was such a traditional woman in that it was hard for her to understand, right, that it, you, you're not going to get a salary, you're not going to get a pension, that these things don't always, aren't always a part of 
this journey. But my mom wanted, my mom worked for Con Edison. Her dream would have been for me to have a job like that, where there was a paycheck every week, where there was a pension at the end of it, where there was health insurance, where there was, you know, some kind of long-term retirement plan where I can make enough money to buy a house. Cause these are all the things she did, right? This was her, and these were all to her path to quote unquote success. And so as early as high school, she knew, she knew from when I was a kid that I loved writing and she always saw it as a hobby. Um, So when I was still talking about it, you know, after college, she's like, well, that's a good hobby, but okay. What's the job? What's the long-term goal? It's like, this is the long-term goal. Well, how does that work? And even when I started getting awards, when I got the first Coretta Scott King award and she was at the ceremony with my mom, with my grandmother and my siblings and, and they give me this huge award. They say all this beautiful stuff about my writing. There are you know, hundreds of people in the audience. And my grandmother's like, well, maybe now someone will give you a job <laughs> now that you've gotten this award. So, so I think there was a way in which my mom and my grandmother never quite understood it. So that they understood, they saw the books. You know, I sit them down and try to explain advances and royalties and subrights. And it was like, whoosh, like, what is this? What is this world? And then as they saw me starting to get more successful, I mean, there was a lot of pride there. And and I don't think they ever understood it. I mean, I think they're writers who don't understand how this works, right? Because it is complicated. How do you make a living as a writer uh, is a huge question. So is there a book or is there a moment where a good moment for you where you realize now I can do this and just do this. Um, the MacArthur. <laughs> the MacArthur is already it's in twenty twenty. That's pretty far on. I I think there's always doubt. I mean, I think it's the thing that feeds us as as artists. There is always this moment that this 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 day is a blessing. This day is a gift. This moment of being able to do this here and now is is awesome. It's not guaranteed, right? Nothing is guaranteed. So uh, I think people like to think there's a thing that's guaranteed, but even the day job is not guaranteed. So I love that today I am going to, after this interview, get to sit and work on my novel or finish up a play. Um, And I'm hoping I'll be able to do that tomorrow. You know, I wear my bike helmet. <laughs> I, I keep my brain protected. I, I try to keep my writing time protected. And I do all the things that I can to be able to continue to write and, and, and hope that I am able to continue to write. You told me once that all the awards, they don't write the next book. Mm-mm. No. And those those awards for the things that you've already done, not what you want to do. And I love them. I appreciate them. I'm I'm so grateful for each and every one that I've gotten. Uh and and it's not the reason I write. Um and it's it's not what I write toward. You're also known as an ambassador, uh certainly in the young adult world, but beyond that for uh, uh brown and black writers. Uh, has that been a blessing or at times has that been a burden? Um, I think, I don't think it's ever been a burden. I mean, I think I, I was young ambassador. I was, um, ambassador for young people's literature and basically spreading the gospel of reading and writing. I think in terms of the, um, 
the black and brown folks, the non-binary, the trans folks, the the queer folks, like any of the folks who um, can use me as a beacon, I'm I'm happy to be that. <laughs> you know, I I don't feel like there is um I don't feel like there is a pressure to do it. It's just who I am. You know, it's just where I landed in the world. It's just the point of time I landed here in the world, and it's just the job that I am here to do at this point in time in the world. Do you know all these years later when you've written a good line? Yes, yes, I do. I, I when I think it's I think it's a good line, but also I I think I know when I'm written a funny line and my kids are like, "That's not so funny, mommy." But I do think that there is this way that it's almost visceral what I feel when I've written. It's more of a passage than a line when I've written something and I thought. I just nailed it because I feel it in my body. Uh, one of the writers that you uh, admired growing up and since, and have talked about as an inspiration is James Baldwin. Can you tell me about the program Baldwin for the Arts? Uh, yes, Baldwin for the Arts, which is baldwinforthearts.org, is a, a, a residency I founded after winning the Astor Lindgren um, Memorial Award, which is an award given by the government, by um, the people of Sweden um, for a body of work. And, and it's basically a residency for um, writers, visual artists, composers um, to come and free of charge, spend time and create work modeled after McDowell and Kaveh Kahnem. But I really wanted to do something where I could fill a hole that was there for me as a young writer, having a place where you could just go and exhale and do your work and not have to explain anything <laughs> um, and feel feel yourself in a safe space to do that work. Hmm. Can you also tell me about the notion of being a slow reader <laughs> and how that affects you as a reader, but also mm -hmm. as a writer? And were you a slow reader growing up intentionally? And do you still read that way? I still read very slowly, and I was a slow reader as a young person. I didn't know it was intentionally. Um, I know it. I think I know it now because when I was growing up, there wasn't room for slow reading. Um, there was always this pressure to read faster, read at a higher grade level, uh, at a higher reading level, um, consume more. Um, but I realized that I was reading like a writer. Uh, looking back on it, I realized I was reading like a writer and just reading the same things over and over and over, trying to understand what it was saying and how the author got me to feel a certain way. And, and I think reading slowly, the only way it's problematic is because so many people ask me to blurb their books and I'm like, I can't because it will take me <laughs> years. Like, I'm not going to sit there and plow through your book. And I don't want people to do that with my work. I mean, it took me years to write a book. I want you to read that book slowly um, and really see what I'm trying to do and study how I got to that. But but reading slowly has definitely been both a gift as an adult and, and definitely has also had its drawbacks because... Sometimes I wish I could read faster, but I think I also have such a deep respect for the written word that I do want to take my time with it. Seems to have worked out okay. <laughs> yeah, so far. You told me several years back that you caught your daughter, I believe it was your daughter, sneak reading your yes. books. Yes. Uh, 
where are you with that now? Uh, is there a love of reading that's been passed along to the next generation? And do they occasionally grant you, uh, hey, that your book, that was pretty good. <laughs> well, my daughter's 20 now, and she is, she is a reader, which I love seeing. She reads slowly the way I do. And, and she, she just finished reading The Method. Um, she's studying acting at school but but i love just seeing her sitting somewhere reading my son is a podcaster he will have a he he always listens to audiobooks and he loves podcasts so he listens to podcasts all the time and can actually recite them word for word the way i could recite read books so um what i love to see him sitting down reading more Yes, because I'm a mom, but I also love the fact that he's con- he has words in his ear. He has words in his head. He's thinking about language. Um, he's thinking about world issues in his podcast. Um, and it, it it's uh, I think in their different ways they both come to words, and that and that to me feels truly gratifying. And have come to your work, or is that is that a work in progress? They, it's a work in progress. Uh, they, they, so um, in, in residence at the Kennedy Center, they come to see my plays. They comment on my plays. Um, they also will occasionally, if, if something makes it to film, they'll read that or, or comment on that. But slowly and surely, they, I mean, they, they, it's hard to avoid my work now because it's in their classrooms, right? Their friends are sometimes talking about it. But but I, I, I think my son might sneak read my books occasionally. Now he's 14. Well, I, I don't know. I don't know. I love that notion of a new verb, sneak read. <laughs> we created a new verb. That's excellent. Well, under the heading of writing a good line, uh, you once wrote about your neighborhood in Brooklyn growing up. I always love this line, amongst many. Uh, white people we didn't know filled the trucks with their belongings, and in the evenings we watched them take long looks at the buildings they were leaving, then climb into station wagons and drive away. A pale woman with dark hair covered her face with her hands as she climbed into the passenger side, her shoulders trembling. You've talked about uh, your upbringing and those years in Bushwick and in South Carolina uh, eloquently and often. How much do those years? How much do those years have a role in the work that you do right now? Hmm. I think so. That was from another Brooklyn. It was so funny because I was just reading those lines over. I'm not sure why uh, a couple of days ago, um, but I think it's it's so much a part of who I am those years in Bushwick. And in that passage, I'm talking about the white flight of the 70s in my neighborhood, um, which is with Another Brooklyn, that book, you know, was nonfiction. All the stuff about Bushwick was true. Then fiction, which is the story of the four girls. Then poetry, which is the line breaks in the white space and the way I lay the story down. And the nonfiction is so much what I knew growing up as a kid that I think it comes into play in so much of my literature, like you said. Um, and it and because Brooklyn is ever changing, it it I feel like I could write about it for the rest of my life and include what I remember and what I'm bearing witness to now. Like I think of my block Madison Street, um, where I grew up in Bushwick, it was by the time the last of the white families left, it was all black and Latino. 
Um, and that street now is 70% white, probably at least 70% white again, because of Bushwick suddenly being quote unquote cool and people wanting to live there. So just watching the way the ebb and flow of, of neighborhoods and spaces and the ebb and flow of time itself, it feels like given what I've held on to from um, my own imprinting years and, and what I bear witness to it, it, I will, it stays with me and I continue to write about it, to explore it and to talk about the way it changes and changes back. One of the pieces of writing that inspired you early on was, uh, the Langston Hughes writing, hold fast to dreams for if dreams die, life is a broken winged bird that cannot fly. And every time we read it, how, how beautiful is that? Mm -hmm. uh, you had this dream and understanding that the awards do not write the next book, that it's about the work and sitting down and doing the work. But do you allow yourself a moment or two or have them in times where you're able to step back again, even for a minute and say, it happened. I had this dream. I was in the library. I was reading these books that transported me, thinking of one day of writing such books, and it happened. Hmm. You, um, I don't know, you make a good point. I, um, I should step back and reflect more, I think. Um, I, I think there's always work to be done, and I should step back and reflect more. I, it did happen. I am truly grateful for how it happened. I'm great. I, I'm so glad it continued. It happened. You know that I still can write, and that people read my writing, and that it changes them in some way. That second verse of the Hughes poem is "Hold fast to dreams." For when dreams go, life is a barren field frozen with snow. And and there's just such a resonance to it. And I think about holding, holding fast to that dream because we don't want to not remember it, right? I don't want to not remember that this was once a dream and it came true, or this was once a dream. This is a dream and it can come true if you're in the early stages of it. Just keep moving. And I, I do think that I need to... Really, it's funny because I have in in my office. If I'm, I'm I'm up in the country now, but in my Brooklyn office, I have all the awards on. Well, a bunch of awards on the wall behind me, and that's because when I sit down to write, I want to look at a blank wall. I want to look at a wall of friends, and 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 um, I don't want to see what I've done. But in the age of Zoom, <laughs> like like you get in front of a camera and it's like you're you know it looks like you're flexing because now you're these wards are surrounding your backdrop and I'm like no this was never the intention. <laughs> so but but yeah I I am happy with how things turned out in my writing <laughs> I must say. Jackie, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Always. You too, bud. Thanks for doing this. Jacqueline Woodson. Among her current honors, she's the education artist-in-residence at the Kennedy Center, where her books are being adapted for the stage. Before the Cheering started as a production of June 14th Productions and Gemini 13 Productions. For more information, go to our website at beforethecheeringstarted.com. This episode was created and written and produced by me. Guitar playing? That's me as well. No extra charge. The episode was edited by Lou Pellegrino. 
I'm Bud Mishkin, and this is Before the Cheering Started. Thanks for joining us on the journey. <laughs>